This episode is sponsored by Curity. Curity is an online art platform that finds you the right art for the right place for the right amount of time. Championing and creating opportunities for early career artists is central to their mission. Their expert curators advise, source, commission, and curate thought-provoking art for your private collection or business. Now, the founder shared an interesting fact with me. After six months, we stopped noticing objects in our vision. Curity keeps your space fresh with an innovative, quote, art on subscription program, which periodically rotates the artworks. I love their mantra of hashtag no naked walls. Visit their website at curity.co. That's C-U-R-A-T-Y dot C-O. On today's episode, we have Rebecca Farr, a leading visual artist. Rebecca uses her comfort in visual language to explore American history and themes of geographic displacement and suffering that have been a part of her own family narrative. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, it's such an honor and pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, it's really wonderful to have an artist of your caliber here. And um, can't wait to share with our audience about um, all your artistic attributes. And uh, one thing that has always impressed me about your story is this artistic lineage that uh, you come from, uh, including your, your grandmother and your father. So I wanted to uh, invite you at the outset to, to share about that. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting road. It's a lineage of, um, what would I even say? It's, an, it's a lineage of a tremendous amount of creative energy and excitement for art and um, halts and kind of permission issues. So my grandma was an artist. She went to Chicago Institute. She was really in love with painting. She was so well um, studied and researched and just a really great portrait painter. Um, and, but you know, of the era she was in, she was married to a doctor and she became a docent at the San Diego Museum and different at the Chicago Institute but it wasn't really a world where women were entering. Mm. Um, and my father grew up in a house where, in that house where art was everywhere and nowhere. And oh. in some ways I did as well. Like he took on, he also was an artist, but only in the last, he passed a couple of years, you know, three years ago. So only in his last two or three years did he really fully embody and claim being an artist. It was a real sticky word. Okay. and our family and i grew up with that kind of tension of it would be better if you were a scientist or a teacher or a social worker or something anything but this so it wasn't um it's an interesting question to begin with because the legacy was resistance amazing wow okay and um you know the concept of art being everywhere but nowhere it's certainly the everywhere part you you described um the nowhere part is kind of this no access. Yeah. I grew up in, um, I was born in LA, but when the war happened, Vietnam, my dad was a conscientious objector. And after filling his time at a psych ward, because he, he earned the right to not have to go to war, which was kind of amazing. Wow. Um, rare. 
And he said it was the most important job of his life and it changed everything. So he decided we needed to be a rural family and we moved to central Oregon. Wow. And, um, you know, my best friend's dad was the president of a lumber mill and there was rodeos and spittoons at parties that were not <laughs> ironic <laughs> and they're probably still there. Wow. And it was the most unbelievable landscape, um, gorgeous, wild and of an era where kids really were just let let to figure out their day, you know, with this yeah. country. And it was an incredible place to grow up and in many ways a perfect place for an artist to have this really kind of almost primal, wild energy of childhood. But it wasn't something that my family was like encouraging me to go towards being trained as an artist or approach an art school. And it certainly wasn't in the kind of air of yeah. Oregon either. So it, I didn't really discover that I was going to go down this path until college. Okay. Um, and I had been planning to be a scientist and that quickly tacked. And then I dropped out of school because I was so freaked out that all I was doing was drawing. Wow. So it took, a, it took another nine months of almost like a gestation period <laughs> of figuring how to approach this thing that had been scary to many generations in my family, but we all wanted it. Yeah. And um, once that hurdle was passed, yeah, there's been many conversations with resistance and lineage in my work but there isn't a question of if i will work or not or if this is my life path so it finally settled down that, was, that became very clear to you lucidly yeah clear. yeah my sophomore year of college i was like done asking the existential question of what will i do right right um what uh, what was your grandmother's name janet far janet far okay and yeah. um how much interaction did you have with her growing up we didn't have that much. She lived down in La Jolla and we were in our rural central Oregon experience and just, you know, difficult for our families to connect for a multitude of reasons. But when she moved to Seattle to be near um, a son and health was an issue and she was, you know, quite a bit older, I was in Olympia at Evergreen State College. And so we started doing drawing classes and I found her that way, which was really nice. Did and that coincide, you're finding her, did that coincide with your affirmation that being an artist was your only path? Um, I think I was pretty much already had figured that out, mm -hmm. but I felt this yank between herself and my father and myself of this tension or resistance like this shouldn't be happening okay. and so i wanted to go to the source as close mm -hmm. as i could and to um study it like yeah. what was this thing culturally between all of us where we were allowed or not allowed yeah and almost in a way asking for a kind of permission or support from her and i really got it she was um very loving to me as an artist and very supportive and was able to make, she's, she was able to make a couple shows and we did some travels to the Getty and different things. So it was a pretty amazing conclusion to um, too much spaciousness really in mm -hmm. the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so well said.
Um, you've shared with me in the past about your challenges in reading and kind of the difficulties with words. And in some ways, I've always interpreted that as catapulting you towards an embracing of uh, visual arts. Um, uh, would you agree with that? And, and if so, oh, share yeah. how, that, yeah. how, how that transpired. I mean, I think it's a blend. There's definitely some reading disability in my grandfather who's dyslexic and um, I definitely had struggle. Um, but I, it was more than just not holding or paying, being able to really grasp sentences and the structure of that. I had like an emotional feeling about reading that it was um, threatening. And I, we went to this super groovy hippie school in Eugene my first year, fresh, or my first grade year. And they were like, go ahead, pick whatever book you want to pick. And so to dodge the whole thing, I carried around an eighth grade literature book, this huge <laughs> book that I could barely pick up. And for the whole year, that was my reading book as a way to almost like a shield, like, please don't let make me look at vowels. And... Um, piece this thing together. So it was really in second grade, we returned back to Redmond because my dad had been going to school and I met my match, Mrs. Lighthouser. Thank God for you. And she just said, you're smart. You're going to learn how to read. And I was like, no, I'm not. I don't know how. And between her will and um, also public shaming because there's a lot of like reading out loud and oh, testing. <laughs> so getting more and more parents that like I was about to go into special classrooms and be pulled away mm. from everything. Mm. That was really impactful. Um, but and I learned quickly once I did. So I would say, yes, there's definitely a learning disability and there are strangeness with words and still to this day spellings very a very creative creature that crawls across the page for me, but it. Well, autocorrect is there to either help or infuriate or, you or make my point every pointed out even more. So yes, it's <laughs> all of the above. Exactly. But I also just think that that um, primary place of not wanting language to dictate or direct my experience Um. Of course, now I love reading. I'm a pretty voracious reader, but I, it took a long time to really nurture that relationship with words as friends. And they were threatening for a long time. And I think the language of visual art and art making um, has a primacy to me that feels more accessible, more comfortable, more honest. There's something about a word being on a paper that already has this kind of binary lie in it or just trauma in it for me about it's making a statement and it's permanent and the ambivalences or the kind of mercurial energies evaporate immediately um and it's funny because i like talking talking's <laughs> fine but writing still is something i work through on that same way a little trapping yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Painful is not. Well, it's hard. Say. It could be trapping in other ways, but in terms of my sense of comfort, it's definitely home. Yeah, yeah. You definitely you find your home uh, in in on the canvas or with your hands making a sculpture. 
um, uh, and so on. So uh, after college, um, you went to Mexico for a few years and then uh, made your ba way back to Eugene. And um, I'm always sorry, Olympia. Uh -huh. Always fascinated with that period of your life when you came back to Olympia. Because I'd love for you to share about um, your experience with Zen Buddhism, and then also um, uh, there's this artist group you joined, led by Simon Kogan. Right. Um, yes. So I actually started practicing with Ado Francis Carney at the Olympia Zen Center in college, my second, my um, sophomore year, <laughs> and it was kind of at the exact same time I dropped out of school and came back, and was totally focused on being an artist and at that time started practicing Zen Buddhism. And it was utterly and completely compelling and magnificent. And one of the most profound relationships I've ever had with that teacher was so good. And that community and that Sangha is beautiful. Um, so then I, of course, graduated and wanted to branch out a little bit, moved to Seattle for a while, and then moved to Mexico, lived in Oaxaca and Guadalajara for about a year and a half, two years. And um, that was wonderful. And then when I came home, 9-11 was happening. Mm. And I would have been really sick with Giardia and was economically just skidding out and was just burned out from traveling for two years and was just um, in this really soft, uh, vulnerable place. And unbeknownst to me, skidded into Olympia. Um, okay. Back into the temple in a more intense practice. Well, so... You hadn't intended when you were in Mexico that, oh, I'll just return to Olympia. No. Kind of, wow. Okay. I didn't know what I was doing. Wow. I mean, quite literally, that whole trip was me. I thought I was going to be going for two months. Hmm. And I stayed almost two years. <laughs> so it's hard to have a plan after something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it was a good, it was a good letting go. Um, but I intuitively came right back to right where I needed to be. So I spent another four years focusing quite intensively on Zen Buddhism with my teacher and that Sangha. And while I was there, started practicing with a local painter and sculptor with a small group um, of artists, um, maybe eight of us in mm. total. It waned and waxed, but eight principles and we were quite rigorous. Uh, Simon Kogan was great master drawer, master, master uh, structure of the human body and light and really technical um, training, learning how to build egg tempera and oil tempera and how to build your paints and how to, you know, the real true painting styles and how to hold your brush and what kind of brush and mediums and, the kind of training that I practice now is hard to get. Yeah. yeah. I kind of just waltzed, tumbled, uh, skidded into it and stayed for four years there with that group. And we would travel to France and different places and do plein air painting. And it was very classic training, um, portrait, landscape, um, still life. You shared about painting in the dark, which always impressed me. Right. 
he would have us do a lot of figure model um, painting where you really couldn't even see your palette because it was so dark. Mm -hmm. um, but the light would be, you know, just on the, the figure. And what that would do is you could, in the dark, see your temperature of your paints, but not really the hue. Mm. And something about that was um, incredibly effective at breaking you from um, the seduction of color. So you were just really honing in on temperature and the way temperature and um, the value of the viscosity could build these kind of dense senses of the figure and flesh and form with, and you turn on the lights and you have these crazy colors, but they were right. Even though they were so wrong, you know, they're just yeah. like, because yeah. <laughs> um, you weren't making any decisions of really, um, I mean, you generally knew where you set your paintings, but as you kept going, it would move along. And so you were just painting blind, really. Yeah. The color. Yeah. Incredible. Mm -hmm. It was fun. So after about four years, you made a transition to Los Angeles. What prompted that move? Love. Love and, and a readiness to, for a bigger world and a readiness to launch. I really never pursued through my 20s um, any sense of a commercial life mm -hmm. as an artist. It was really heavy on the study okay. and the travel and kind of exploration of the spiritual practices of meditation. Yeah. And when I, when I moved here, I was ready to launch that question of entering an art world, um, which I'm still launching that question. I think it's a great question to ask right now. What is the art world? Because it's moving so dramatically with this pandemic. But um, I moved here to be with my wife now, uh, Lisa Romarin a photographer and um, she was born and raised in Seattle where we met oh. um, eight years before we got together okay. and been together 15 years so okay. long yeah no that's wonderful to hear um, and you you've shared that your practice really shifted when you came down to LA just not being with that community anymore right but there were some strong learnings in that. You kind of were able to abandon certain aspects of that training. Yeah, one first thing that happened, which was so interesting, was coming from the Northwest, which is so gray. I had a very bright palette. Mm. Um, and then when I moved to LA, my palette turned gray. Wow. Monochromatic. It went monochromatic. It, it just slowly, like, to black and white. Um, and then... And has kind of it has a tendency to go through rhythms of that. It's almost like I go into color and then I purge. Um, that's so interesting. What do you think that's based on? I mean, I immediately thought of this like contrast affinity because in the gray area you had more colors, and here where there's so much bright, right, jubilant sunlight, your palette got narrow. But share from your experience. I think it was in way, I think anytime I go, it, when I find myself going into black and white, it means transformation. Like I'm. Your practice I'm, is shifting. Yeah. It's like cleaning all the dishes in the kitchen. Like it's hard to cook <laughs> if you already have last meals set up there. Yeah. yeah so yeah. it's a way of clearing, literally clearing the palate mm -hmm. and then 
and letting this new language kind of lope into it. And it's its own palette. You know, I think yeah. it's a, heart, a heartbeat of my painting to, to drop into really restricted palettes or really limited palettes like that. So, yeah. You have a strong interest in history mm -hmm. and not only family history, but also American history. And I'd love for you to share how that's informed your work, because I feel like that's an, a component of this conversation about narrow or broad palette. Right. Right. Um, I, the biggest question in my work, I would say if I had one thematic study, wherever it goes, it's been on the, the trauma healing diagnosis you know whatever of the body mind split mm. and i've looked at it through philosophy i've looked at it through family story and then i've also looked at it a lot through american history and through manifest destiny and the migration patterns and decolon you know or like this kind of colonizing mind and of course those have tendrils all the way into the foundations of um Christianity, farm, agriculture, and, you know, way, out, way, way before the U.S., but because this is, um, I'm wanting to hold on to something that I have access to, it's been easy to, and attractive and wonderful to look into American history. So I've done explorations of the Puritans and the witch trials and um, movements the manifestos of moving westward and gold and civil war and um kind of the westward expansion has been a, a heavy theme some of that is probably my childhood landscape because i was mm. such a rodeo ranch um i felt that pioneering energy all the time the weathered wood and the barbed wired fences and the you know skimming cream off your cereal <laughs> and the, having bits of hair in it and venison and elk and i mean that kind of um romance or aesthetic or feeling of the westward expansion was where i grew up wow I, yeah. yeah even though we were a hippie family and didn't have a ranch it was everywhere yeah. so it became an entry point for painting. Okay. That makes and it's sense. been interesting as it's evolved. I spent about 10 years heavily researching different aspects of um, the stories of breaking body identification with land and yeah. how and when, and almost like a photojournalist documenting the ruptures. Yeah. Um, and then my dad got sick and that, really shifted my focus to a more pointed psychological stance and looking at this rupture or this question of breaking or making up the story of the split between the body and the mind and this kind of disassociative place of embodiment, which is really, if you ask me, embodiment is enlightenment. If I going back to the Zen Buddhism and the practices of all that, um, my real quest is to be here fully. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is how meditation has impacted your practice of art. And I have a sense this came into play when you developed sculptures around the time of your, or with the body of work post your father passing. But uh, mm -hmm. I wanted you to chat about that with us. 
I think it's been central from the very, very get-go. And in fact, I would say the Zen practice almost, they were birthed almost at the same time, like right when I was really sincerely launching coming out as an artist is exactly when I started really practicing with Edo. Mm. Um, so they're inseparable. Mm. Um, I see painting as a practice that flows infinitely much better if meditation's connected. Gotcha. If I'm regularly practicing meditation, my painting will go, go a lot better and it has more substance and it's, it is my subject. Is meditation your conduit to your creative energy? I think creative energy is just, that's like saying, you know, like air or something. It's so everywhere all the time. But I think meditation um, helps me calm down enough mm. to be aware of it. We, we, we've talked about how in your practice, you don't really do studies. You have this kind of layering or what I almost like to call pentimento effect. Um, share about that process wise for yourself. I'm not an artist that will like take a painting and study it and break it down and draw it and then go to scale and then draw and paint it again and have it formulated. And so by the time I'm actually on the canvas, I pretty much have already done the math. Um, I am definitely one, like in the last show, um, Animal Love Thyself, I would spend the morning with a beautiful cup of coffee and slippers <laughs> in a robe and just open up all these great Renaissance paintings that were all around this kind of uh, Last Supper, the themes of that show, Last Supper, the expulsion from Eden, and the coronation of the Virgin, I would just drink them and drink them and drink them in. And then I'd close all the books, not have them in the studio with me and just draw into mm. the canvas with paint, mm. um, with maybe an underpainting, you know, like an under coat so that it, there's an, a real immediacy and kind of a unknown, exciting feeling of going straight at it. Some happened fast, some happened slow, some need layers and layers and layers. Others um, are quite thin and drawing-like. As I've been evolving in this new work, and really it's gotten softer, but I've had years where there's just the paint is so thick mm. because it's not something I'm going to think through before or it either worked or it didn't. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, if it didn't, then you just keep going. Right. And going and going and going and going because oil will let you do that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. Right. Well, and I it's loved maddening. this. I mean, maddening. That is probably the most odd um, sensation in the body when you can't find it and you're mm. working and working and working in paint. That's a really specific uh, discomfort mm. that I'm very familiar with. <laughs> One of the shares we had when we were together, you talked about how um, you you sometimes just let your brush stroke be imprecise or clumsy, and uh, you just sort of you're getting this um, almost feedback from your work as you're creating it, and that informs how you proceed. Yep, 
definitely so. I'm not looking for uh, representation, even though I'm very interested in the experience of the body and the symbol of the body and the meaning of the body in the painting. The idea of getting the representation right, actually. I squirm, and I know a lot of figurative artists that are in this boat with me where we're hovering towards it, but too much accuracy feels not right either. So this like abstracting, finding, narrative, figurative, dream, psychological space. Um, and that requires a kind of vulnerable hand, I think, mm. for, for my own uh, liking. Yeah. That the clumsy marks or the lines that aren't aren't um, put together with with uh, well finesse or like a grace is needed to get to a really good clumsy line. It's perfectly that. wrong. Right. I love that. That's my favorite. Uh, so well said. Uh, yeah. Gonna let that simmer for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> that was really juicy. Nice moments. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, that's, that's really great. So um, what are you inspired by nowadays? I've been looking a lot at um, Plato's The Allegory of the Cave and mm. Jungian studies of the descent and the underworld and these kind of rebirth narratives. Um, one, I think I'm... I mean, I think each respiration and exhalation is is that cycle that they talk about in nature of coming and going. I think our whole culture is in that state mm. of surrendering and submitting and falling into a mysterious space that offers great riches and is also terrifying and has a destructive capacity as much as life-giving. Um and I think in particular, I'm throwing those old questions I had about embodiment into this mysterious space. So I'm looking a lot at Plato's stories of um, the cave and this idea that we're trapped by our senses and our perceptions. And if we could only kick out of that, we'd find um, true form. Mm. And I'm renegotiating that idea in my mind. Um, and in the paint that there's a duality of that question. You know, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I see that as a prison, um, or if it's wise to rebel against it, but to sit with in the dark, um, in the not knowing rather than trying to get some empirical state of knowledge, um, but to feel around in the dark and to actually let the dark cave, that mysterious space, do what it needs to do to wake you up rather than push against it. So there's, there's a lot of cave paintings yeah. in the studio right now. <laughs> Rebecca's so great. Um, ah, thank you. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive and Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.